Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on a sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on this afternoon's programme, I'm delighted to have Jane Mayled alongside me. Jane is the Managing Director of True Story, a creative agency for retailers, brands and consumers facing businesses of all sizes. Um, Jane, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us as well, Jane. Um, normally, we would dive straight in with the topic of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, let's start on that. Um, It has, I'm sure you'll agree, been one of the greatest challenges of our time for leaders within businesses and within governments alike. But in your line of work, just how has it affected you and your operations in recent months? Well, first of all, at a personal level, it has been the biggest leadership challenge I've ever encountered. For us as a business, um, we are fortunately a position where we have been able to trade all the way through but it has been hugely challenging I suppose the speed with which the world that we were operating in changed so one of the ways I've described that to people is to say that um, we've been living our disaster recovery plan as like many businesses we had often well we've got a proper formal plan that said if the business if the building wasn't here tomorrow what would we do And I have 90 people in my team. I've got a fantastic team of creative people. And um, obviously, within a very short space of time, everybody was relocated to work um, from home. And although we are now partially back in the office, um, I'm extremely proud of all my teams and navigating through that. Um, But I think it's probably the first time in my leadership career where most people had absolutely no idea what was going to happen next. And I think it goes to show, doesn't it, that leadership is still a process of learning. Even now, we are still experiencing challenges that we never have done before. And you never are the finished article, are you, when you are stepping into a leadership role? You are never, ever the finished article. And um, I've been working with and leading people for nearly, well, 40 years, I suppose, in total. And um, I'm learning something new every day. I think what I do know is that um, it's probably never been more important, that sort of clarity simplicity, authenticity um, has been vital. So um, the real human qualities of leadership, I would say, have been so important because in a period of uncertainty, I think people are looking to you um, and you have to just bring your best self forward. And it's important to consider mental health and well-being within leadership, especially during a time like this as well, because the pandemic has thrust the importance of those issues very much back into the uh, the limelight. And it isn't just isolated to looking after your own mental health, of course, being the leader and burning yourself with all of that responsibility. But it's also about safeguarding that of the people around you just as much. Well, I think that's been one of the most important things, actually, for us. Um, Excuse me. We have, as I say, we have 90 people. I have a fantastic HR director and um, her whole mission in the first, um, and and she's still doing it to a degree, although things have shifted, was her whole focus was on having one-to-one calls with every single person in our team on a regular basis. And then my own leadership team has has been doing the same. Because it's very easy to think that, you know, we're treating people as a, uh, you know, on mass, but it, it, everybody's circumstances are different. And it might have been childcare issues, it might have been shielding issues, 
it might have been anxiety about, you know, job security, any of that. So that real pastoral care has been an important part of our leadership mission, if you like, over the last few months. And when you've been taking on all of this responsibility of providing direction and inspiration to people during a difficult time like this, when it is getting a little bit much and sometimes you do need a little bit of inspiration for yourself in your own leadership role, where is it that you tend to look to for that, considering that you're the one at the top of the tree, as it were? Well, I've done a number of different things. Um, I have reached out to other leaders that I know who are either in similar businesses or, or different where we've been able to have really open and authentic conversations about the challenges. Um, so that's been important. I've joined um, in a few sessions that the DBA, the Design Business Association, has run where leaders have been talking together about challenges. And, and it's one of those kinds of things that actually in my normal working life, I think, oh, I haven't got time to do that. I'm so busy doing it. But actually, um, that's been really, really helpful. Um, but also, I've been really open with my team. I mean, like many people, we've had... Uh, a regular and certainly for the first four months, you know, weekly all team Zoom call where, you know, we've really aired the way everybody's feeling, me included. And I've been really open and said at times I've felt like putting my head down on the desk and mm. crying, but I haven't, um, particularly in the early weeks when things felt a bit more uncertain. So it, I think it's a combination of peers, organizations, and then just some authentic human connection. Do you think that the use of technology has been able to replicate that sort of authentic connection where we've had to remain socially isolated during this time? Because there are many people um, talking about the possibility of that now becoming a permanent fixture in the way that we sort of do business in this country. Well, I think it's really interesting. I've been talking about it today. Um, I was in the office yesterday having a workshop with some of my clients and it was absolutely wonderful to be in real life. And the technology is fantastic. And um, there's lots of brilliant learnings that we've had. We know we can do it, whether it's Zoom, whether it's Teams. All of that is absolutely great. It's very tempting to think that becomes the new way of life. But as soon as you start to get a dose back, in my experience, of some real person-to-person um, -person sort of engagement, then I think you remember why that is, in my opinion, you know, something that we can't live without. So I think it is a blend. Uh, it is a blend going forward, but I, I don't think it's, I don't think we're going to be staring down the mm. camera and not interacting with each other as the new normal for everything. Definitely not. Of course. And um, I think you won't see very well too many businesses rather jettisoning their office premises too swiftly because I think they do value that human connection. And we could see more of that sort of hybrid approach in future, as you sort of hinted at there, of people maybe working from home maybe a couple of days a week on a personal basis when the office does return in vogue. And then for the rest of the time, sort of going into work premises mm -hmm. for that sort of more human contact. Yeah, I think that's important. And also, we did a big, um, well, we did a big piece of research with our people um, about two months in. And, and what I said to everybody is, you know, there were some questions to answer, but then there were the usual spaces where we sort of say, T tell us more about how you feel about, you know, X, Y, and Z. And, and I said to them, oh, look, these are the bits that often you skip over, but please don't skip over. Tell us how you're really feeling. And um, everybody, you know, I ended up with a sort of 40 page document of, of what was really going on in people's lives. And I think just learned so much about, you know, where people have had some improved work life balance, where, where, you know, the big, big pressure of juggling childcare, how difficult that has been. You know, there's a huge assumption that if people are working from home, they've got some, you know, palatial office overlooking their garden. Well, that's not the case for everybody. Mm. You know, you might be perched on the end of your bed, you know, and, and juggling children at home and all of the rest of that. So 
um, I, I think there's just with 90 people there's probably 90 different sort of perspectives on it but I'm really keen and we are as a team not to lose some of the good things that people have really gained from it in terms of sort of quality of life in really difficult circumstances obviously. Mm. And considering all of the lessons that we have taken from this year in particular if you could go back say sort of 10 years and address the younger version of yourself is there anything that you would tell the younger you to maybe do differently or any certain leadership qualities you'd want them to embrace a little bit earlier on um gosh that's a really tricky question um i mean i've always believed that you have to expect the unexpected um i think this unexpected which maybe for many people wasn't unexpected as bigger than any unexpected I've ever, uh, you know, sort of looked into. So I suppose, um, I think that what this, this scenario that we've all found ourselves in has highlighted all sorts of, um, magnified perhaps challenges and, and things both about your own leadership style and about the way your business operates. So I suppose, um, the only advice I'd give myself is keep regularly thinking about the unthinkable. Don't get too, you know, don't just assume that life's going to continue the way it is because most likely it isn't. Mm. It's striking that balance between proactivity and reactivity, isn't it? Of course, it's good to have plans in place and be ready for the unexpected, but also with changing guidelines, changing circumstances, you also have to take some quick decisions, don't you? But also in a measured sense. Yes, I think I think that's the main thing. I think that there is, all we know is that uncertainty is, is here to stay. It was here to stay before this in reality. Um, and being agile, being flexible, and, you know, sort of being open to quickly pivoting that word everyone's using, you know, and adapting. Gosh, it's such an important part, actually, of what any, any leader is doing. But at the same time, hopefully giving people a sense of confidence that you're not lurching, but, that, you know, you, you are... Um, you know, calmly thinking things through and, and just, I think, being decisive. I think, you know, decisive leadership helps everybody, I think. And we are indeed no stranger to uncertainty, as you say. It's been sort of the uh, the buzzword of the uh, the last sort of three or four years. Of course, Brexit was the big polemical issue um, before COVID-19 emerged in 2020 and that's still not gone away it's still roaring um, ahead in the uh, the background and indeed has returned to the headlines uh, this week to sort of kind of juxtapose COVID-19 in a sense let's say um, so I think it only is right that we talk about the future particularly the next 12 months just before we do wrap things up on the program today Jane um, we do know of course that over this period of time we're going to have to adjust to this new way of living and new way of working while we wait for the outcome of the Brexit negotiations of course but during this period of time coming up now what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at True Story and indeed where do you see the business being this time next year? Well, I'm confident. Um, I'm confident when I look ahead because I think that we've proved that we can be adaptable and flexible and we have a robust business. So I think well, what I want to do is to move into the thriving phase where taking into consideration all the things that are challenging, that are different, the things that are still going to keep coming and hitting us. You know, my vision for our business is it's sustainable. You know, it's sustainable for our people and for our clients. And that remains the, you know, that remains the number one priority. But I'm I'm confident that even through the uncertainty, we have to keep, um, you know, our eye on, on a thriving vision of the future. If that doesn't sound like, you know, <laughs> meaningless words, you know, we, we I think it's, 
in the first few months of, of this year's um, unfolding scenario, it was easy to get into a completely sort of day-to-day place. And we're mm. now in it, you know, we're building our, our sort of 15, next 15 months business plan and just trying to balance the normality with the uncertainty um, and getting into a thriving mindset is really, I think, what, what I'm hoping for for our business. It's certainly not an idealistic point of view, for sure. I think it is incredibly sensible, and I do wish you all of the uh, the luck in the world in making that possible. Um, and just before I do let you go, Jane, um, just if you could channel your experience in business for a moment and maybe give a message to those younger listeners that may be tuning into this who are aspiring leaders wanting to maybe make it in business for themselves in future, what advice would you give them to really get them on the road to success? Well, I think the first thing I would say is that I think when you're in the early stages of your career, you assume that everybody who is further ahead of you um, has some sort of magic power and knowledge that you, you, you either you don't have and you have no idea how you're going to get. I think the closer you get to it, the more you understand that most of us are really working it out as we go along and feeling our way. Um, so I would say don't compare your insides with other people's outsides. Um and be your authentic self, because I've certainly found in my career, the more I'm really me, um, the better I've done. And um, nobody has all the answers. Um, I, the other thing I would say, which one of my um, old bosses said to me, uh, you can lead from the front, not just from the top. And mm. so, uh, yeah, that probably sounds very trite, but it's something that certainly sort of characterized the way I've gone about doing what I'm doing. No, I, th- I certainly think it's very sound advice if uh, one interprets the uh, the right way, uh, Jane, for sure. And um, I honestly, I, th- I think just given how enlightening it's been having you joining us on the uh, the programme uh, this afternoon, I think it would be wonderful, in fact, to catch up at some point in the next year and have you back on the programme with us just to see how some of your plans are certainly coming to uh, fruition over the next few months. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Thank you. I've really enjoyed having you joining us on the air today to discuss your views on leadership and the current climate. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on. And let's just keep our fingers crossed. Thanks very much. I was speaking. On, I was speaking on today's program to Jane Mayled, managing director of True Story, and I would reiterate that message as well there to all of our listeners today. Do please continue to look after yourselves and others. It does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, next up on today's program, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, having held a number of senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and served as the MP for his Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August of 2015. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett and that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who 
don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will, in some ways, be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and production of goods, and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system, we're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who have Mm. something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and 
there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government. I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the U.S. and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting 
what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, 
people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains 
and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where 
people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare Mm. uh, where it neither represented a a credible opposition nor uh, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways, uh, supportable opposition. 
as well as a government, that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sukir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sukir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset 
Andy has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.